Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. If I haven't had a pleasure to meet you yet, my name is Ryan Correa. It's an honor to be with you guys this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to jump into Isaiah 58. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. So I'll read the text, we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Isaiah chapter 58. I'll be reading in the CSB. Cry out loudly, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a ram's horn. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways, like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted, but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this? A day for a person to deny himself? to bow his head like a reed and to spread out like sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't this the fast I choose? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? This is God's word. Let's pray with me. Father, we welcome you here. Um, would you be honored in the preaching of your word, God? Sanctify us in the truth. Lord, your word is truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to start our time today, I'd like to take all of us back to a time well before any of you actually knew me. I'd like to take all of us back to my first time babysitting. I was 12 years old. I was very clueless. I really had no idea what I was doing. But somehow this family entrusted me to watch their six-year-old son. So I get dropped off at their house. I walk in the front door. I meet the mom. I'm kind of getting the tour. And then I realize that I actually have a lot more on my plate than I thought I did. This family had three dogs and four cats. And in addition to the six-year-old boy and me, I was tasked to make sure all of them got fed too. So the mom's explaining how this food goes to this dog and that food to that cat. She's got six bowls, or sorry, seven bowls all on the floor lined up next to each other and is pointing to which bag goes into which bowl. So I'm listening but feeling very confused, very overwhelmed, and honestly not really retaining any of it. But instead of saying something, I just kind of nodded my head and I smiled and I said, all right, sounds good. <laughs> so the parents leave, the kid and I sit on the couch, start playing video games, and a few hours later, I know I'm gonna have to go feed these animals. So, you know, as best as I can remember, I grab the bags, I put it in the bowls, and just do my best. <laughs> a little bit later, the oldest dog walks up in between me and the kid and the TV, and he pukes all over the floor. <laughs> 
So I didn't know what to do. I, I was 12. I had never cleaned up vomit before. I was like, man, do you put it in the trash can? Do you put it in the toilet? You call some 800 number, get some guy to come clean it for you? Like, I, I'd never done this before. I didn't know what to do. So I did the best thing that my 12-year-old brain could think of at the time. I grabbed some paper towels. I laid it on top of the vomit. I left it there. And then I kept playing video games with the kid. <laughs> Shortly after, one of the cats walks by gets underneath the paper towel and starts eating at the vomit. No joke. So I tried to shoo it away, but I guess I didn't do it quite in time because a few moments later, this cat begins vomiting on the carpet. No joke. And guys, the next few hours will forever remain scarred into my memory because what happened was that I guess all these animals had eaten the wrong food. They began vomiting all over the floor, eating each other's vomit, and then vomiting some more. I am not joking. There had to be at least a dozen piles of vomit. And while all this was happening, for some strange reason, my strategy never changed. I was sticking with the paper towel thing for some strange reason. At some point, it smelled so bad that the six-year-old son ended up throwing up himself. Not joking. So the parents come home, and needless to say, they weren't too happy. It was my first time babysitting, and it was my last time babysitting. And you know, I, I learned something that day. I learned that paper towels were not made to cover, but to clean. And I learned that there's a vast difference between something being clean and something seeming clean. Have you ever learned that lesson before? I mean, hopefully you never had an experience quite like that. But have you ever become painfully aware of that great gap between what something was and what it seemed to be? Maybe the boyfriend or girlfriend you thought seemed so great after a little time turned out to have poor character. Maybe the home remodeling project that you were so excited for looked great in the magazine, but after the work was done, it didn't quite look the same as it did in the magazine. Maybe you're a new parent, and parenting, as it turns out, is a whole lot harder than you thought it would be. We all know this experience far too well, and here in today's passage, we're going to see that same gap appear. We're going to see the gap between when God's people are faithful and when God's people seem faithful. And we're going to see today that God is calling us to be rather than to seem. We're in the third week of a four-week series right now called Imitate. We're considering what does it mean to imitate God. We're all made in God's image. We're stamped deeply with the Imago Dei. And so with his image in us, we're called to image forth his character and his likeness into the world. And today we're going to think about that in light of doing justice and mercy. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian... You might have a view that you think highly of Jesus, you think Christianity is a fine religion overall, but that the Bible is backwards and it's socially repressive, right? It gives advantage to those with the most power in society and disadvantages those with the least. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't necessarily hold that view, but you've heard that line of thinking before and you're afraid it might be true. Maybe that fear is so strong that it's kept you from opening your Bible in quite some time. Well, I have good news for us today. The one true God of the Bible is the one true God of justice. He loves the low, the least, and the lost. His heart has a special fondness toward those without power and toward those who've been abused by it. And across the mountain range, packed with Bible-centered God passages, Bible passages of a God-centered view of justice, Isaiah 58 is probably Mount Everest. 
There's nothing here that's different than what the rest of the scriptures teach on justice, but this passage really does stand out from the rest. Its peak is high, pointing us to God. Its footprint is broad, pushing us out into the world, and its mass is heavy, grounding us in truth. If you asked a dozen Christians who've read the Bible multiple times, hey, what's your favorite passage on justice? I bet at least half of them would say this one, maybe more. Isaiah 58 is about God who deserves our worship and how we as his people are to offer it. We are not called to seem faithful. We are called to be faithful. We are not called to seem just. We are called to be just. So with that in mind, we'll walk through the passage. And as we do, we'll see two clear truths emerge. Then at the end, we're going to conclude with two questions, two truths, two questions. All right. Here are the truths. First, God refuses religious rituals verses 1 through 5. Second, God chooses justice and mercy. It's verses 6 and 7. God refuses religious rituals. God chooses justice and mercy. Okay, number one, God refuses religious rituals. Well, we're near the end of the book Isaiah, picking up on a theme that was from the very beginning. A lot of the language here in chapter 58 is very similar to the language we saw in chapter 1, where God also causes people out of hypocrisy and into justice. In chapter 1, the word justice shows up five times. Throughout the book, it shows up 29 times. So in a book saturated with the great sovereign power of the one true God who will not give his glory to another, we see that this God, the God of Isaiah, is the God of justice. And that brings us here to chapter 58, verse 1. Read with me. Cry out loudly. Don't hold back. Raise your voice like a ram's horn. Tell my people their transgression in the house of Jacob, their sins. Here, God is speaking to the prophet Isaiah, giving him a strong call to action. He is to rebuke God's people for their transgressions and for their sins. Sounds like a fun job, right? Well, not only that, but he's to do it loudly, to not hold back, to raise his voice like a ram's horn. Literally in the Hebrew, this meant call from the throat. You know that type of shouting that shreds up your vocal cords after just a few seconds? That's what God's telling Isaiah to do right here. So when we read that and we see that's what's going on, that should make us pause for a second. Why is God telling Isaiah to be so loud and so intense? It seems a little overboard, doesn't it? Well, it's because of what we're going to see here in the next few verses. Read verse 2. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways, like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments They delight in the nearness of God. Well, that all sounds pretty good, right? No red flags here. Well, we're going to see what's wrong in the next couple of lines. Look at the beginning of verse 3. This is Judah speaking back to God. They say, Why have we fasted, but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. This is the problem. This is what's terribly wrong here. This proves that all of what sounded kind of good in verse 2 is actually just a sham, and which is why God told Isaiah in verse 1 he needs to be loud and intense and not hold back because he needed to get their attention. They were performing religious rituals in order to get something from God. Their worship was marked by transaction, not by devotion. Charles Spurgeon tells a story of a great king and his first nobleman who were visited by a poor peasant. The peasant journeys from his distant village into the king's palace, 
And as he comes before the king, he falls to his knees and he extends in his arm a bright orange carrot. He says, dearest king, this is the finest carrot my garden has ever grown. And now it is yours. Now the king is so touched by this peasant's display of loyalty that he receives the carrot and in return he gives this peasant acres and acres of fertile land. The nobleman was standing beside the king and he watched all that happen. So he gets an idea. He's going to go grab his finest horse, offer that to the king, and then see what he could get in return. So he goes, he grabs the horse and he says, dearest king, this is my finest horse in all of my stable. And now it is yours. So the king receives the horse, thanks the nobleman, and then leaves the matter at that. The nobleman was upset. He says, King, I gave you my finest horse, and that peasant gave you a mere carrot. How can you reward him with fertile lands and give me nothing? The king responds, My dear nobleman, you must understand. That peasant came to give, but you came to get. And that makes all the difference. Here was the nobleman's formula. If I want the king to give me acres of land, I need to give a carrot. And if I want something even more, I need to give a horse. It sounds much like Judah's formula here in verse 3. If we want God to give us something, we need to pray. And if we want something even more, we need to fast. Now, let me be clear, there is nothing wrong with making requests of God in prayer, and there is nothing wrong with fasting. Scripture instructs us to do both. But something is terribly wrong with treating God like he's a vending machine. I'll give him some prayers, press the little buttons, and he'll give me what I want. So I'll do my part, but he better do his. Have you ever seen that type of thing before? This so-called worship? It's everywhere. It's well-disguised and it's leading countless people astray. But you know, while that broad issue does concern me greatly, here's a better question about an even more pressing matter at hand. Have you ever practiced it yourself? I mean, even a little bit, even one time. Have you ever gone to church or gave an offering or read a verse or said a prayer, not because you wanted to give God something, but only really because you wanted to get something in return? To make it even more worse, have you ever done one of those things and then added fasting on top of it, thinking that would improve your chances? God cannot and will not be bartered with. He will not be trivialized or tantalized or domesticized. God does not accept religious rituals. God does not tolerate religious rituals. God refuses them. To the humble, God corrects with a fatherly whisper in the ear. To the hypocrite, God corrects with a blaring megaphone in the streets. God used to whisper to the hypocrite, oh yes, but with every disregarded whisper, his ears have grown increasingly callous with pride and swollen with deceit. Now, he can't hear the whispers. He won't hear the whispers. He doesn't want to hear the whispers. So God, in his mercy, pulls out the megaphone and shouts. So which one are you? How do you respond to correction? Does it humble you or does it harden you? It won't leave you neutral. Isaiah was given a direct, authoritative, divine message from God to call these people out for their sins. And for you and me today, it doesn't quite work the same. God has already given us his direct and authoritative and divine message right here. 
And now we open this book and we correct one another in love when we see each other out of line. (laughs) Reprove one another, rebuke one another, exhort one another, admonish one another, teach one another. These are the corrective commands in the New Testament. And over my six years at Blueprint, I've done this for some of you. And some of you have done this for me. It hasn't always been easy, but oh, it's been so good. (laughs) We need this, church. We need correction and we need it from each other. So today, if you hear God's voice through his word in the mouth of your brother or sister, don't harden your heart that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but listen and hear and be humbled. I think this is one of the best evidences of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. It's how we respond to correction. If you despise it, it proves that really you only wanted to seem humble, but you never actually wanted to be humble. You might acknowledge you have sin with your lips, but as soon as something gets pointed out, you're filled with bitterness in your heart. And if that's you, well, you might come to church to offer a religious ritual, but you won't come to offer worship. It's far more difficult to be rather than to seem, but church, let us be humble. Let us receive godly correction and be thankful for it. Now, take a look at the second half of verse 3. This is God's response back to Judah immediately after all their hypocrisy gets revealed for all of its ugliness. He says, look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all your workers. God continues to unpack this in verses 4 and 5, but I want us to slow down to see something really important here. We've already seen one problem with their worship. It's hypocritical. It's transactional, and it's what God directs their attention to here in the first phrase. You do as you please on the day of your fast. But we can't miss the second phrase here either. This is huge. He says, and oppress all your workers. These are God's people. They were under brutal, oppressive slavery in Egypt where they were oppressed as Pharaoh's workers. And now they're the ones doing the oppressing? Even though God had set them free from Egypt and graciously given them a new identity and a new way to live in his law, the Torah, he he told them directly, Deuteronomy 24, 14, he says, quote, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. You shall not oppress. And here they're doing the exact thing they were told not to do. This just got a lot worse. What we're seeing here goes far beyond religious transgressions. We're seeing economic and social and systemic transgressions too. And God, like the eye of Sauron in Lord of the Rings, sees all of it. Nothing is hidden from his all-seeing gaze. In everything we do, we are accountable to him. Their religious rituals were proven to be fake, not merely because of their hypocrisy on the Sabbath, but also and even more so because of what came to surface on their Monday grind. They thought they could treat people who were stamped with the Imago Dei as if they were cattle branded with an iron and then cover the whole thing up with some fasting to make it all good. Honestly, it sounds a lot like my line of thinking with the paper towels. But God won't be tricked. God won't be fooled. God knows when his people seem good, but they're not good. And so God calls it out. But here, like all of God's call outs, it's restorative It's instructive. He's patient. He's kind. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So he shows them a new way to live that's better than the paper towel method, a way that won't lead to more vomit 
and more dysfunction. This leads to our second truth. Number two, God chooses justice and mercy. Read verses six and seven with me. Isn't this the fast I choose? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, We're good. Live stream. Love y'all. Appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Verses six and seven. God chooses justice and mercy. God asks of his people, proving they should have previously known, he says, isn't this the fast I choose? Isn't it? Then he offers eight descriptors of what this true fast is to look like. Now, why should these people have already known this? Why is he asking them assumptively? Well, it's because God had already commanded it. These are all consistent with what God had already revealed to his people in the ethical instructions of the Torah, and yet his people had neglected it and even abused it. So he's not teaching them something new here. He's reminding them of what they should have already known. For God's people then, for God's people now, how much do we need reminders? Isn't that right, church? And how gracious is God to give them? Well, in the third and fourth descriptors, he reminds them that the fast he chooses is to, quote, set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke. He's saying, hey, get the oppressed out of the oppression. But notice something else here. In the first and second descriptors, he takes that idea a step further. He says to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke. Not only are they to get the oppressed out of the oppression, but they are to break the system of oppression that caused it to be there in the first place. Get them out of the chains and break the chains. Tear off the yoke and untie that yoke so no one else is going to get tied up in it. It sounds a lot like those wise words from Dr. King. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. There are kids in our city who can't read, who won't graduate high school, who are stuck in the projects. Those kids will give birth to more kids who won't read, who won't graduate high school, who will also be stuck in the projects. Some would say that cycle is because of unjust social structures set in place. Some would say that cycle is because of the breakdown of the nuclear family. But you know what no one would say? No one would point to the kid and say it's his fault. All would acknowledge that, hey, for that kid to not read, there's a bigger story at play here, right? Verse 6 isn't looking to make political commentary. Verse 6 is just saying that cycle needs to be broken. So yes, of course, let's get the kid out of the projects, but also, and even more than that, let's break the cycle that caused that kid to be there in the first place. And let's break it from every angle. Now, verse 7. If you have a background with the Bible, the 5th, 6th, 7th descriptors here might sound like familiar language to you. He says, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him. These are the exact same ideas Jesus emphasizes near the end of his ministry. 
He says in Matthew 25 that when he returns, he will come in glory. He will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And then he's going to separate the sheep to his right and the goats to his left. He's going to separate those who were his followers from those who weren't, including those who only seemed like it. But you know what's interesting and very challenging here in Matthew 25? It's how he's going to do the separating. He says of those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. The right will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger or take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And King Jesus famously responds, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he flips it for those on his left. For everything that's affirmed to the sheep is denied of the goats. He tells them, you didn't give me something to eat. You didn't give me something to drink. You didn't take me in. You didn't clothe me. You didn't visit me. You didn't take care of me. Then he says, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Church, hear this from our king. Be humbled. Don't be hardened. We can't be religious hypocrites. We must do justice and mercy to all and especially to those in the household of God. We don't have time to dive into the second half of the chapter here. It's so good. There's so much in it. But here in verse 7, as we're looking at the hungry, take a quick look at verse 10. It doesn't say if you offer food to the hungry, although that would make sense, right? They're hungry. They need food. No, he says even more. He says if you offer yourself to the hungry. What the hungry really needs is far more than food. It's dignity. It makes me think of an Indian brother I met overseas. Came from a Hindu background about 20 years ago. This guy's a seasoned church planner now. He just drips with wisdom. So I had a conversation with him one time, and I asked him. His name's Kumar. I said, hey, Brother Kumar, you've seen countless missionaries over the years, and I'm a new one. So tell me, as a new missionary, how can I best serve you and your people? This man looked at me. His words cut to my heart. He said, you know, Ryan, I've met so many missionaries who've come to India with plans, with strategies, with advice. I've met some missionaries who come with money or food or supplies. But I've met so few missionaries who come to India with love. That's what my people need more than anything else. They need love. How powerful is that, right? Food can feed a stomach, but love restores dignity. So when we serve others and do justice and proclaim the gospel all for the glory of Christ, let us be sure to do it in love. You know, seven is a number of completion in Hebrew. And in many ways, this eighth and final descriptor is a way to summarize the previous seven. He says, not to ignore your own flesh and blood. That sounds like the language you would use for your family, right? And God's using it intentionally here. He's not talking about literal blood family, but he's making the point that when it comes down to it, we're all made from the same stuff. We're just some dust from the earth, animated by God's breath of life, stamped with the Imago Dei. No one's above, no one's below. We're all completely equal in worth, value, and dignity. 
Is that how you see the poor? Is that how you see the marginalized? When you're getting off the interstate over here at Boulevard and Freedom Parkway, and they come up to your car and knock on your window, is that how you see them then? Do you tense up and get annoyed? Or do you have compassion and do what you can to help? Small tip for you here. A friend shared this with my wife and I. It's been very helpful. Keep some basic supplies available in your car. <laughs> some granola bars, some water bottles, a fresh pair of new socks. <laughs> it's not much, but guys, it does matter. We just heard it from the mouth of Jesus, right? <laughs> God has a way of using small things for big purposes. Not only in that person's life, but in our lives too. You're not above them. I'm not above them. We're all made from the same stuff. We're all stamped in the image and likeness of God. We're all broken because of sin, and we all desperately need grace. So let's summarize what we've seen here in verses 6 and 7 about the fast God chooses. We've seen that if we're performing religious rituals but neglecting to show justice and mercy in the world, then we're missing the point. Allow me to put it even more bluntly. Worship without justice is worthless to God. Let me say that again. Worship without justice is worthless to God. <laughs> Some of us need a broader scope of Christian maturity. Some of us understand maturity as growing in the scriptures, growing in prayer, growing in evangelism and hospitality and service. All those things are great. Amen. But let us also grow in doing justice and loving mercy because all of that is worship. And worship without justice is worthless to God. We've seen two truths in the passage. First, God refuses religious rituals. Second, God chooses justice and mercy. Now let's take this home with two concluding questions. Here's our first one. I would imagine it's on the minds of many of us in the room already. What's the relationship between doing physical good and doing spiritual good? How do both relate to the Great Commission? It's a big question <laughs> with a whole lot to it. So here at the end of this sermon, we won't even come close to being exhaustive. But I'll borrow a couple of words here from Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, that I think will serve us really well. Keller answers that question by saying doing physical good and doing spiritual good have an inseparable and asymmetrical relationship. Inseparable and asymmetrical. So first, they're inseparable. They must go together. We cannot choose one and leave behind the other. Isaiah has crowed out loudly, he has not held back, and he has made this very clear for us today. We should gather in the pews, we should go to the projects. We should know our Bibles, we should know the local news. We should care and act when unborn babies are killed in the womb and when unarmed black men are killed by the police. We cannot choose only to preach the gospel and care nothing of poverty or oppression or suffering or injustice. No, the two are inseparable. Because God sees it all, God cares about it all, and he is Lord over it all. Second, they're asymmetrical. So although they're inseparable, they aren't equal in proportion. Doing spiritual good is our primary responsibility in the Great Commission. To boil it down, make it simple, that's preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches among all nations. Gospel, disciples, churches. That's at the top of our job description, and that's our primary responsibility. Others may do physical good by God's common grace, but only we, the church, have been entrusted with the gospel. So others might give that cup of cold water, but only we will do it in his name. Because that's what Jesus did, right? He gave them bread, 
and he'd tell them, hey, I'm the bread of life. <laughs> he'd give them water, and he'd say, hey, let me tell you about living water. Jesus said, hey, let us go to the next town that I might preach there also, for that is why I came. People's greatest problem is not a physical problem or a social problem. It's a spiritual one. It's their sin before a holy God. And the greatest injustice is when God's people, who have the greatest news, treat the greatest problem like it's just one problem among many. Just kind of avoid it. So let's do physical good. Let's prioritize spiritual good. And let's do them both. They are inseparable and asymmetrical. Now, depending on your background, I'd imagine that one of those two words is probably more difficult for you to swallow than the other. One might be pretty obvious. One might be pretty challenging. For me, just laying my cards on the table is that they're inseparable. They must go together. That's, that's more challenging for me. I need, I need these reminders. That's why it's been so good for me to sit under this text in light of all God's word and be reminded, be corrected, be stirred up toward justice and love and mercy. Frankly, it would be easier for me to preach a message on Romans 10. Hey, here's the gospel. Let's go share it. That's why I, like all of us, need the body. Because we all come under the word, and we all have our backgrounds, we all have our bents. It takes a whole Bible and a whole church to make a whole Christian. So let's come together in love and patience and in unity, and let's see the relationship between doing physical good and doing spiritual good as inseparable and asymmetrical. This leads to our final question. And really, guys, this is the most important one here at the end. Number two, how can we be people of justice and not just seem like it? I'm eager to see how the Lord uses this text amongst our body to stir all of us up toward action. First John 3, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. If this sermon stops here within these walls, then we have failed all of us, and especially me. So read verses 6 and 7. Read them over and over and over again. But rather than keeping them caged up within you, I want you to take these verses and strap them to your feet like a pair of Nikes and just do it. <laughs> For some of us, we might decide to volunteer at the after-school reading program or to apply to be foster parents, or buy groceries for a refugee family, or buy someone a MARTA ticket, or help an ex-convict with their resume, or raise the ways of your employees, or raise awareness for a local election, or run for local office, or maybe even just as simple as keeping some socks in your car. There are hundreds of ways the Lord might use this text to stir us up to do something, and while I would commend all those things as great possible action steps, I would caution us before viewing any of them as a first step. How do we become people of justice instead of just seeming like it? Well, church, it's through justification. If you're not familiar with that word, it means God declaring us righteous through faith in Christ rather than us earning it by doing good things. It means God doing what we can't do. The God of justice is the God who justifies, and he makes his people just. We can't start at our activity. We must start at our identity. And what we know of our identity is that, really, we were made to live like verses 6 and 7, but all of our lives are much more like verses 1 through 5. All of us, myself included. We are self-seeking. We like our comforts. We avoid sacrifices. We procrastinate justice. We lack mercy. And if we want God in the picture at all, 
is not for him. It's really just to get stuff from him, to make ourselves feel good and be happy. But there was one who was not like us. God sent Jesus to fulfill the law. God sent Jesus to fulfill this fast. He didn't ignore flesh and blood. He humbled himself and put on flesh and blood. We avoid the marginalized, and he pursues them. We create victims of oppression, and he willingly became one. We put on religious charades, covering up our filth with paper towels and act like it's all good. But Jesus cleaned us up, and he covered us in his righteousness. In his death, we are freed from the penalty of our injustices. And in his resurrection, we are empowered to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. More than anything else, Isaiah 58 should make us love Jesus and look to him in faith. If you're here and you're not a Christian, that's the first step for you. If you're here and you are a Christian, that's the first step for you too. (laughs) That's where all of us have to start and come back to over and over and over again. Because there and only there, God opens the floodgates to let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream. Church, let's look to Jesus. Let's choose the true fast. Let's be faithful, not just seem like it. Let's do it today. Will you pray with me? Well, Lord, we need your grace for this. So God, empower us by your spirit to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to you in Christ Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.